I met Eudora Welty in the Algonquin Hotel, where she'd been stood up by somebody, and there she sat all alone. Unbelievable to a Southerner that an elderly lady would be allowed to sit there by herself. And So I went over to talk to her, and I said, I don't know what to do. I have written a book set in Colorado, a book set in California, and a book set in Connecticut and I don't know where to go. And she looked at me and said, well, honey, it looks to me, Connecticut, California, Colorado, you're just sneaking up a Carolina, and that's where you ought to go. You ought to go home. You ought to let your fiction grow out of the land beneath your feet. Writer Michael Malone heeded Miss Welty's advice and returned home to North Carolina, both creatively and literally. Around 2000, he and his wife, Maureen Quilligan, moved to Hillsborough. The town was never the same. Quiet stretches between the Hog Day Festival in the summer and the holiday parade suddenly weren't quiet. Calendars filled up with community theater performances, music recitals, casino nights, book readings, black tie Oscar parties, which alternated with Oscar pajama parties, elaborate fundraisers, panel discussions, film screenings. Michael spearheaded all of this and still managed to write novels, plays, television scripts, songs. He dreamed big and lived large as did the townspeople right along with him. So when we invited him to record this podcast in my den one morning, it wasn't at all surprising when he took one look at the room and had big plans for it and for my musician husband, Eric. This room is wonderful. Isn't it? Yes, it's soft, it's padded, it's... I had a feeling that you would really enjoy reading in here. In fact, you might want to just give up its being a part of your house and um, <laughs> and it turn it into a recording open studio. A, open a recording studio. Yeah. Get a little light installed that says on air. Yeah, right. <laughs> Eric, don't come in. <laughs> Eric could record in here. Welcome to Season 2 of 27 Views, the podcast where we talk to some of our favorite writers in the American South. Here we explore what it means to live in and write about this corner of the country. From the north banks of the Eno River in Hillsborough, North Carolina, I'm your host, Elizabeth Woodman. Today, we remember the late novelist, Michael Malone. Michael possessed an exuberance that was impossible to resist. He was kind, generous, curious about everything and everyone. His creativity was as expansive as the man himself. He wrote 12 award-winning novels, a short story collection, nonfiction. His fiction included Handling Sin and Uncivil Seasons, which was one of the popular Justin and Cuddy novels set in the South. He wrote for daytime television. Regardless of the genre, his work was hailed for its smart humor and exploration of social issues. But Michael never lost sight of what he most valued. For the online magazine South Writ Large, Michael listed 10 things he could never live without. 
The list was topped by his wife, Maureen, and daughter, Maggie. Granddaughter, Maisie, had not yet been born. Second on the list was this. The act of creating, he said. Not the product, but the praxis. It can be novels, meals, stonewalls, puppets, concerts, talks, parties, and with the most pleasure, plays performed with a community of fellow players. To know Michael was to automatically be enrolled in the fellowship of fellow players, regardless of theatrical experience or history of stage fright. He had grown up casting family and friends into his early and elaborate theatrical productions. I want to be on Broadway. I was saying at eight years old, I forced my siblings to be in all these musicals I wrote and plays. One was called The Prince of the Chinese Elephants and had like 30 acts in it. And now they flee whenever I'm doing something around here. They leave, they go to the beach or the mountains. A year before he died, Michael joined us in our homespun studio to talk about his life and work and to read from and discuss his story, Uncle Tatlock and the Town Clock. It's a prequel to his novel, The Last Noel. The Uncle Tatlock story appears in the anthology 27 Views of Hillsborough, a Southern Town in Prose and Poetry. Your work is often celebrated for its sense of place. And it's been noted in a lot of reviews of your many novels. And I'm curious about what about Hillsborough has drawn you as a writer and how it has influenced your writing. I am a native Southerner, which means you're always a Southerner, unlike native Yankees who don't feel that. They never say, I'm from up north, but we always say, I'm from down south. I had set novels of mine in North Carolina. So it was the it was the landscape of my imagination. I had actually come down to Hillsborough when I was working on Time's Witness, which is a novel about the death penalty in the South and its relation to racism. And I asked my sister, who lives in Chapel Hill, uh, to take me to Hillsborough because it had the old courthouse and had been the the seat of uh, government, and she brought me here, and I, I loved it. And so when we made the decision to move here, I felt like I'd already known it because the Cuddy Justin novels, as they're called, are all set in a town called Hillston, and it's sort of a composite of Durham's textile factories and Hillsborough's legal system and Chapel Hill's university. So it was familiar to me, and more astonishing was Maureen, who never lived in the South and knew little about it, feeling that she had moved into one of my novels. And she would go, oh, there goes Cuddy, that police car down the street. Oh, oh there's this. And, and so, and I did find, because I'd gone off to write television for a while, and I found books just pouring out of me. I think when you write a fiction, there are certain questions you have to answer before you can let loose and then let the fiction go where it wants to go, which it always will. And characters will refuse to do things you need them to do and do other things. But what you first have to know whose voice is it, who's telling the story. 
It would be a very different Great Gatsby if Gatsby told the story, not Nick. And you have to know where it's at. That is key. What is the locus of the story? Tell us about the evolution of this particular story. Uncle Tatlock is a story with characters who are the central characters in a novel of mine called The Last Noel. And so the house, in a way, was modeled on the house where we lived for the first 20 years. We were here at Burnside, which is on top of a hill above the courthouse. The story began when I was asked to write a short story for a literacy program that Orange County had. And I was told that it would be wonderful if I could write something that anyone from a middle schooler up could read and that they wanted me to read the story to a middle school in Hillsburg. And I thought, okay, I've got these two characters who are children, who are seven years old when they meet and then they grow up together and they represent a great divide of wealth and white privilege versus the clay home. So the name of the where the family that worked for the rich family is in the earth, clay home, and heaven's hill is very large and high. I'll use those two characters to tell the story. And, and I, it was such a worthy, I love when art connects to community. I love that. It's like being in a choir in heaven to me. And this was an opportunity to do that. The community event in Michael's story is called Insurrection Day. It references a defining moment in the 1770s, not more recent events. Hillsborough actually was early to the American Revolution. The town is steeped in the history of the Regulators, a band of local farmers who in 1772 rose up against the royal government, protesting high taxes and corruption. Six of the Regulators were captured and hanged by the Royalists. Michael drew inspiration from the Regulator's story. Today, Kay had an idea. He was full of ideas, and sometimes they drove his friend Noni crazy. Why don't we fix a clock, he said. They were pushing their bicycles up the steep street that ended at the entrance to Noni's home. The house was enormous and called Heaven's Hill. How about this, he said. When you run up those courthouse stairs, I'll already be up there in the steeple and we'll turn back that clock just like it happened on Insurrection Day. Noni stopped to catch her breath. Kay, we can't fix that clock. That's a historic clock. My daddy asked a clock expert and he couldn't fix it. Well, Grandpa Tatlock can. He can fix anything. A small African-American boy pushed ahead of her through the gates of Heaven's Hill. Noni hurried to catch him. He can't fix history. They argued, 
but they were ten years old and still easy with one another. So many historic markers line Main Street in the little town of Moores, North Carolina, that visitors could not drive slowly enough to read them all. There was even a large sign announcing that the Revolutionary War had actually begun in Moores in 1772, long before Paul Revere went galloping off somewhere up north, shouting, The British are coming! The British are coming! This Monday, Moores would celebrate its annual Insurrection Day, and Noni Tilden had been chosen to play the part of the brave colonial girl who had stopped the British from hanging her father on the courthouse lawn. It's been said that you navigate the literary landscape in genre. You have written novels, you have written short stories, you've written plays, you've written scripts for television. I read a sonnet that you wrote in honor of a friend's birthday. There are no genres that you haven't really touched, it seems. But I'm wondering if this is the first time you had written for young readers. Actually, years and years ago, I wrote a whole children's book with a wonderful illustrator, but we never were able to get it published. And my dream always, as a child myself, was to uh, write musical, write musical theater, write, write for the stage. I think I've paid a price for going from genre to genre. And one of the things that has been troublesome to me is the so-called mystery novels that I've written. I would go in bookstores and see them and mystery and Handling Sin or Dingley Falls and all in literature. But I think that's a mistake. And indeed, I was at Knopf, and they were upset with me for writing on Civil Seasons and said I couldn't follow a novel like Dingley Falls with a novel like Uncivil Seasons. Why? Because it was a lower genre, the mystery was lower. And, And I said, you know, I was young and very arrogant. I said... To Kill a Mockingbird is a mystery. Uh, Oedipus Rex is a mystery. There's a murder in practically every novel of Dickens, and so I fired this letter off and all. And the editor, uh, his name was Gordon Lish, and he was a very eminent editor. He did write me just a postcard, but still a note when Uncivil Seasons came out and actually got the most uniformly great reviews of my novels so far. Okay, so I was wrong, he said. Uh, but but it, I do think, you know, you can't be writing songs when you're supposed to be writing novels. And, um, oh, but songs, I, another genre. I, yes. I didn't include. And indeed, my, <laughs> my, my favorite now. I don't see why not, but I do see why not. And why not is you you read uh, Fitzgerald. It's the same story over and over and over in the same perfect way. And uh, mine are not, except 
what you mentioned. I mean, they are rooted in place. And that's one reason why I think the mystery works so well for Southerners. And there's so many from Edgar Allan Poe and Mark Twain on Southern mystery writers is because the mystery comes out of the past, out of the tangled roots of forgotten crimes and sins and since nobody ever moves, they're around to uncover those. As the story continues, we follow Noni and Kay as they get ready for the annual pageant. Noni has been chosen to play the part of Priscilla, the heroic young girl who is the daughter of the revolutionary Proud Gordon. Proud Gordon has been captured by the British, and he's been sentenced to be hanged when the town clock strikes noon. Proud Gordon tells Priscilla to go home and remember this day is not the death, but the birth of freedom. Priscilla refuses to give up. She runs into the clock tower and wedges an iron rod into the gears of the clock, turning it back to 11, thus vacating her father's sentence. Fast forward to the annual modern-day reenactment, the town clock no longer works forcing the drama to rely on a tape recording of Big Ben ringing 11. But Kay and Noni know who can get the town clock working again. There was no denying that Uncle Tatlock had a way with the broken things, a gift that people in Moors used to good advantage, bringing him everything from jammed vacuum cleaners to crippled birds. He had passed this gift to fix things on to Kay who loved to work beside his grandfather, helping him repair old radios and car engines. They had even wired together the bones of Tatlock's amputated legs and kept them on display in a cardboard box. Decades later, when Kay became chief of staff of Haver University Hospital, he always said his medical ambitions had begun with Tatlock's leg bones. So Tatlock sent Kay and Noni back down the hill with a big walkie-talkie. The two children climbed the courthouse tower and Kay spoke with his grandfather on the walkie-talkie. Tatlock asked question after question about the clock. That evening, the old man told the children that clock just needed to be tinkered with by somebody who understood it. It had been out of balance ever since that colonial girl stuck that rod in and wrenched it every which way. Clock's never been the same, but it had too much heart to quit for another hundred years. Got gunked up with time till it stopped. I feel the same way, I'll tell you. He sighed a great sorrowful sigh at the relentlessness of age. But my brain and y'all's legs can take care of this clock business. That clock will be as good as new. We've heard the story of the regulators for many years. It's very present in contemporary Hillsborough. You've added a female to this mm-hmm. to this story. You've added African Americans. You've added the enslaved people to this story. Mm-hmm adding different perspectives and making it a more inclusive history. That is the absolute heart of all of my work. And 
thank you for saying that. In Dingley Falls, the first thing I did was draw the town, draw every house, and then imagine who would live there, and then start telling the story. So everybody's story gets told. And I remember being in like third grade, and I had drawn a Thanksgiving and there were about like 40 people on this piece of art paper at the feast of all different kinds. And the teacher said, I think what she should, not a good teacher, it would be better if you just drew one person instead of all these people. And people have said that to me about my novels. It would be better. How can we keep up with all these people? There are too, too many notes. There are too, too many people. And it's interesting, Dingley Falls is the longest book I ever wrote. It only takes place over six days. Last Noel is the shortest novel I ever wrote. It takes place over 40 years because it's about race relations and it's about the civil rights movement. And so what is the world of civil rights like this time when they're seven, at this time when they're 14, at this time, and so on. And we get a preview of that in this story. Yes. What they're going to be like as their friendship, which is easy now at 10, gets more complicated, turns romantic, has the complications of that, and then reaches its genre we started with. It's a romance novel. And a lot of people, when I when I was on tour reading from it, wanted to express to me that they were angry with me because she dies, and they were upset by that. And I said, well, you should have known from the opening scene, which is coming out of a long tradition, Kathy meeting Heathcliff, uh, and so on, that she's going to die. That's what the romantic heroine does. Well, don't do it again, they said. <laughs> the Insurrection Day pageant begins. Right before noon, as scripted, Priscilla runs up the courthouse tower as her father is marched to the hanging tree. Unbeknownst to everyone in the audience except Uncle Tatlock, Noni, playing Priscilla, meets her friend Kay in the tower. Instead of starting the Big Ben recording, they release a rope they had tied to the clock's great pendulum the night before, after they finished following Uncle Tatlock's instructions. For the first time in 150 years, the clock rings 11. The crowd stared, and then they clapped and shouted. No one knew who had fixed the clock. No one suspected the two children or the old African-American man in the wheelchair who quietly watched from the audience. As the townspeople stood debating who was responsible, Tatlock yelled to Kay and Noni, Push me on home, children. The three conspirators looked back down at the courthouse. They heard the clock strike twelve. Time was going on again in Moore's. I'll tell you another day that clock rang out special, Tatlock said. 1865. My great-grandpa was a boy right here down the road that day, and he heard that clock chiming 
when the time come for the generals to walk out that little house over there. What generals, asked Kate? Confederate. They had to give it up, right here in Moore's. Twelve o'clock noon. The clock in the courthouse rang out the hours. My great-granddaddy heard it ring, and he said how it was like a bell in his heart. How that clock was ringing out freedom that day. End of the war. A happy day for all our people. Not that things got much better. Why didn't you leave here, Grandpa? Kay frowned. It's my home, he said. Just like it's Noni's. He took her small hand in his. It's our home. And time changes things. You just have to wait. Noni and Kay pushed Grandpa Tat back home. And after supper, they sat with him, watching Insurrection Day on the local news. And then the news of the world outside the world they knew. We have been remembering the late author Michael Malone, who died last summer, extinguishing a life fully and generously lived. He read from and discussed his young adult story, Uncle Tatlock and the Town Clock, the prequel to his novel, The Last Noel. The story was featured in the anthology, 27 Views of Hillsborough, a Southern Town in Prose and Poetry, which was published by Eno Publishers. Michael wrote a dozen award-winning novels, including Handling Sin, Time's Witness, and three Justin and Cuddy novels. A New York Times reviewer described Justin and Cuddy as, quote, two of the most memorable police detectives ever to appear in mystery fiction. Michael also wrote short stories, plays, songs, and poetry. If you would like to hear him read his entire story, Uncle Tatlock and the Town Clock, from 27 Views of Hillsborough, you can find a link to the recording on our website at enopublishers.org. That's enopublishers, with an S at the end, dot O-R-G. There on the Michael Malone show notes page for Season 2, Episode 13, you will find a link to the recording, as well as more information about Michael and his work. 27 Views is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Woodman. That's me. Editing and mixing supervision are by Mark Maximoff. Executive producers are Ezra Rawich, Laura Lacey, and Elizabeth Benfey. Many thanks to soprano Andrea Edith Moore for contributing the song Cemetery to this podcast. Her close friend, Michael Malone, wrote the words. And thanks to Hank Smith for his banjo interlude of Cemetery. The composer for both song and interlude is Daniel Thomas Davis. You can find a link to the songs and others as well in the composition entitled Family Secrets, Kith and Kin on our website. Other music for this episode includes the song So They Say by Vendla, 
It's available on Epidemic Sound, and you can find a link to it as well on our website. 27 Views theme music is from the composition called Cory in the Meadow, written and performed by Bruno Luchron. Please join us next time for more stories and voices of the South on the 27 Views podcast. <laughs>